You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are a few highlights from this week's program. Two years ago, in one of the benches, we had Protestant, Catholic, a Jew, and a Muslim all in that one, all in that one bench, and uh, it's it's just that kind of, of service that it draws people from all kinds of traditions and backgrounds. And I know people who go there who don't go to church any other time of the year. They had they didn't only reserve Sunday for services; they would have some services whenever he said we're going to have a service. And if it was sunny weather, they had the services under the oak trees in the field. If it was a rainy day, they came into the house that he built and had the services in the house. So they were having services there for a lot longer than the church existed. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 306, Summer Chapels, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 30th, 2017. Summer chapels offer Maine residents and visitors of all denominations a unique setting in which to worship. Today we speak with the Reverend Kit Sherrill, who for many years served as the summer rector of the Chapel of All Saints by the Sea in Southport. We also speak with the caretaker of All Saints by the Sea, whose great-grandfather founded this chapel more than a century ago, Al Moses. Thank you for joining us. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is Kit Sherrill, who previously served as a summer rector of the Chapel of All Saints by the Sea in Southport. Now almost fully retired, he occasionally officiates at baptisms, weddings, or funerals, as well as the service on Christmas Eve. Thanks for coming in today. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. It was very fun to visit you in uh, Southport and have a chance to see the chapel that we're going to talk about today. It's, uh, it's a special place. Really is. It's uh, it's about a little over a hundred years old, but it's it's just a fantastic place for everybody who goes there. So, and there's an interesting story there because the family that made the chapel possible is originally from Gardner. That's right. The um, the minister who came down from Gardner to do some picnicking with friends back in the 1860s, late 1860s discovered a nice piece of land down there and decided to buy the land and build a cottage. And then there was no other clergyman around, so he started having services outside or if it was raining inside. And that went on for about 20 years until a woman donated land in the, in 1905, they built the chapel, dedicated it in 1906. And uh, so it's, it's been around for over a hundred years. It's a special place. Southport, for people who are listening um, and aren't familiar, is very close to Booth Bay Harbor and Booth yes, Bay. Yes, that's right. It's the land mass that forms the western side of Booth Bay. It's about five miles long, a couple miles wide. 
And if you come there looking for anything, you won't see anything because the road goes around the island. Unless you know where to turn off, you'll think, oh, that's just woods. So it's kind of neat. It was it was really great that when we met with you, we were doing our 48 hours Booth Bay, Booth yeah. Bay Harbor for mm-hmm. Maine Magazine, and you were able to say to us, take a left down this road, take a right down this road, mm-hmm. um, it'll take you to something interesting. Yeah. You weren't always able to tell me what the names of the roads were, and in fact, we didn't often find signs on the roads. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But it's true, you kind of have to know what you're looking for. Yeah. Yeah, it's, we've got a, a swing bridge that uh, lets you on the island, and we think of that as our gate for our gated community. <laughs> and unless you really know your way around, why you're lost when you come on the island. So it's a great spot, good people, wonderful place. It was also fun because uh, a lot of people think of Booth Bay Harbor and the place where you can hop on the boat and go out to Monhegan, but Booth Bay Harbor has so many booth bay the area has so many different um aspects to yeah, it it really does yeah it's really quite a it's off the beaten track but it's just got a an incredible amount of stuff to it and uh, with new money moving in and people with new ideas all kinds of things are happening so it's going to be different in the coming years from the way it has been but i think it's going to be good difference so we're very lucky to live there this is a place that you retired to, or semi-retired yes, to, I guess. Yeah, yeah but I hate to think of it, but it's almost 17 years ago now we retired up here. I've been coming up here, the first time I went to the chapel, I think, was probably about uh, 1950, when I stayed this summer with my grandmother, who had a place at the head of Southport Island. And uh, then when I graduated from seminary, and we went up there the next summer with our kids, uh, my grandmother put a little pressure on the chapel to give me a chance to to preach and do a service, and they liked me well enough. They invited me back, so it's been almost 50 years that I've been taking services there. A lot of the, a lot of the summers, it's been a real blessing. You know, when you're when you're a clergyman, you don't own much money. We didn't uh, we didn't have our own house back wherever we were working. I was working, and so we could not have afforded to come to Maine even back then when rents were a little cheaper. And so uh, having this opportunity to take our whole family up there for a whole month in a nice little cottage, and they were always by the ocean, uh, was just just so special. So our, uh, our kids all got hoodwinked, though, because they never got to see any of the rest of the country, <laughs> you know, always to Maine in the summer. But two of them up there live up with us now, and one gets here whenever he can. So. Yeah, it's been a very special place for, for, for my family and for me. It gives me a sense of, of rootedness, as my little bio comments to you indicated. I've bounced around a lot, uh, starting when my mother died when I was young and, and all of that. But All Saints and Southport have provided me with a, a rooted place. Going back every year, I felt this was home. So it's very special to be able to retire there. Well, as you said, you you were born in Warm Springs, Georgia. Your father was raised on a farm in North Georgia, and your mother was from the east end of London. And it was just after you turned two that she passed away. Yeah. So you you yourself did have this kind of not as much rootedness. No. From no. an early age. No. That's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, we, my dad took us to England after my mother died, and uh, then the war broke out, so we got shipped back to this country on our own, put on a train in New York City and back down to Georgia, and uh, we bounced around quite a bit. And then in the years in which I worked full-time in the ministry, we lived in 18 different homes. And uh, you don't get a sense of rootedness when you're bouncing around like that. So Maine has been a, a very special gift to us. It really has. I don't know what we would have done without it. We'd have probably still been bouncing around somewhere. Yeah, it's been do great. You, do you think that this idea of having a summer chapel um, speaks to that need for rootedness? Well, I, th I think it does. Uh, the people who come there on Sundays, most of them have been coming there for years or have children that are now coming. And uh, it does give a real sense of community. Uh, most people on vacations in a place like that, if they don't have that kind of thing to go to, the community is their friends and family. But this broadens it up and, and gives the people who go there a sense of the larger community. One of the things this chapel has done for a long time is give about 50% of its donations to local outreach work in the community. And so because of that, people who go there know that it's the, they know the larger connections that we have and the commitments to that. So it's it really does overall give a wonderful sense of being part of an important community, vibrant community. Yeah. It's not a very big place. No, not a very big place. Uh, maximum, um, and we don't get the weddings anymore we used to because of this. Uh, you can seat about 110, and uh, we fill them up pretty much on, uh, come close to it on a Sunday morning. Back in the heyday, back in the 50s though, they'd get 200 there on Sunday and people would be standing outside and sitting on the, <laughs> on the benches out there and stuff. But it's, it's not big, but it's, um, it's a place that people go to regularly and commit to and uh, it's, I just keep saying very special. It's, it's a holy place. Well, it is a holy place. I noticed even yeah. we were there on the off season yeah. and walking uh, on the path through the woods. Yeah. It's very quiet. And yeah. then it opens out and there's the chapel on the shore and then there's yeah. the dock that people can actually come to the chapel yeah, by right. boat through. Yeah. Yeah. So there is something very quiet and different yeah. than many churches. Yeah, yeah it really is. Uh, you know, it's not unusual. I'll go down there in the day sometime for something, and there's somebody either outside the chapel quietly resting and meditating, or even in the chapel if it's a damp day. It's a place that just draws people, two of them, to the site because it's, uh, it really just has a sense of a larger presence to it. It really is a rejuvenating place for a lot of people. It seems unusual that it is a chapel that one can reach by boat. I haven't heard of that many. I don't think there are very many of them like that. No, I, uh, I really haven't explored that up and down the main coast, but I, I have a sense this, is, this little chapel is unusual, partly because of that, but partly because it just sits right there on the rocks. Most of them are, are back a little bit, uh, and most of them haven't been blessed with having somebody give them land on the water. I can think of a number of chapels, but they're all off the water, All Saints is 
pretty lucky. <laughs> There's a space that's been um, created with this idea of, uh, I guess, settling for a few moments to absorb the peace in mind. There's there's places where people can sit just outside the church yeah. that's very welcoming. That's right, and and in the not in the uh, in the regular season, we have benches scattered around several little locations there in the woods, and and it's really very special. And there's also a little site by the side of the path where people who want to have their ashes scattered in a memorial garden can do so, and there's a bench with that. So it's uh, it's a place where lots of things cause people to come back. You described Christmas Eve Mass as being uh, yeah. particularly moving for yeah. a variety of reasons. Talk well, to me about it's, that. Well, it's, you know, you go down that path in the woods on a winter's night, and it's cold and the wind may be blowing and and you step into this little quiet room um, by the ocean you can hear the ocean outside there's no organ playing because it's a little too cold for the organ to play so it's silent all the hymns are sung a cappella um, it just it's a holy night and of course that's what Christmas feels like to so many people a, a holy night and it just seems to work. Uh, two years ago, in one of the benches, we had a Protestant, a Catholic, a Jew, and a Muslim all in that one, all in that one bench. And uh, it's it's just that kind of of service that it draws people from all kinds of traditions and backgrounds. And I know people who go there who don't go to church any other time of the year, but Christmas somehow is special to them. And that place makes it very special. So I've been doing that for 16 years. The only reason we have the service is because I'm on the island and can do it. So they keep saying, hey, you got to keep living a little longer. So <laughs> keep me alive by going to do Christmas Eve. So that's great. And it's not heated. So people really nope. just have to enjoy each other's warmth, literally. Well, you know, and it's interesting, you get 75 people in there, and within 20, 25 minutes, it's people are starting to take their coats off. It warms up, and I guess people relax and get into it. So it's, you'll have to come sometime. I will, I definitely will for, for good. Christmas, yes. Good, good, It seems as though, well, you described the fact that um, people aren't getting married as much there because it doesn't seat as many people and maybe people want larger weddings. Yeah. But is it also because um, we're at an interesting crossroads in people's faith in this yeah. country? Yeah, I think so. Uh, the younger generation doesn't seem to have the same connectedness to church and to the all the stuff that goes with church. And so they're they're looking for a different kind of environment. I'm going to officiate a couple, an older couple, this um, this fall. They didn't want to get married in the church. They just wanted to get married in their backyard. I think there's more and more of of that. And I think partly it's people have a a greater sense of nature maybe than they do of finding the spirit of God in a building. They find it in the world. And, uh, and nature and so I think that's part of what drives this too because I've done a lot of traditional services outside and other places are fairly traditional and so it's not that they don't like those words and those thoughts but the location 
they just are looking for nature. And uh, the chapel has it, but you've got to be inside. <laughs> it has been interesting for you um, to be a reverend, to be associated with the Episcopal Church. This wasn't something that you knew you were going to do from an early age. No, 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 I didn't. I, uh, I got involved in the church, I think, when we finally, my dad remarried and we moved to western Pennsylvania and he married a, an English woman. Her, her parents were English and so she was a good Anglican Episcopalian. So we started going to church and I got in the choir at an early age and, and then became an acolyte and did all, all those kinds of things. I had no intention of going into the ministry except one Sunday morning, the minister there, that at that time I was 14, he took me aside and he said, you know, I don't want you to think about this, but I think you might be called to be in the church, to be an ordained person. And I looked at him and I thought, you're nuts. And I went my way. But then a number of years later, when I was going through a difficult time, I dropped out of college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and I was waiting for the military to pick me up. and. And I heard that conversation in the back of my brain, and I thought, well, maybe, maybe. So I started exploring it, and it's worked out well. It's been a real, real blessing for me. It really has. You've been doing this for how many years now? Ordained in 65, so 35 plus 17 is 52, yeah. And there have been a lot of changes Oh, a lot of changes, within yeah. Not only the church, but within society at large. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we've gone through all of the things having to do with human sexuality, uh, you know, gays and lesbians and transgender and gay marriage. And, of course, before that was even starting to crank up, we had the whole issue of bringing women more fully into the life and and leadership of the church. And uh, all of that, of course, met great resistance from the traditional folks. And the Episcopal Church was very traditional in lots of ways. But uh, I've been fortunate to be on the involved in that. And uh, I remember years ago when I was getting ordained, an older gentleman, clergyman called me in and he said, you know, I don't know why you're doing this. The church isn't what it used to be. And it isn't what it used to be. And of course then, in that period when I got ordained, we had the Civil Rights Movement, and I got very much involved in that. And uh, so it's been a dynamic time. It's not been always easy, uh, but it's been, it's been alive and uh, continues to be that way. We still have a lot of issues and stuff that the church needs to deal with, and fortunately, a lot of people in the church are taking hold of that and doing it. So maybe we'll work out the whole problem with immigrants here one of these days and all of those things that we're finding are continuing to be big issues that we need to work on together. So I've been lucky to be part of that, really am. You've also been fortunate because you've shared a life with your wife, Lee. You were married in 1960s. So that mm -hmm. was before you became ordained, before yeah. any of this traveling around. Yeah. And she stuck with you. Yeah, she stuck with me. <laughs> yes, there have been some times when I've wondered why she has. Um, but uh, now she's, uh, she knew when we were married that that was the direction I was going. I went to seminary two years later. 
so she knew that from the get-go. It was never something she thought she would do, but uh, she was a she's a committed Christian in the best kind of way. She's not narrow. She's very broad and open, and and has always been ethically inclined and morally inclined. And uh, so she's. I think she feels very much at comfort in the church. What's been uncomfortable for her is that she has to take a back seat a lot of the time. I'm the one that's preaching, she's not, even though she'd like to do that. And uh, so I think there's been some, there's been some bumps in the road, but we've had a fabulous marriage and uh, she's just been great to live and work with and love. And our three kids seem to have all turned out pretty well. So we're fortunate. I've only met your daughter, Susan yeah. Axelrod, who's the editor of uh, Oldport Magazine, yeah. but she's pretty wonderful. So I can, oh, yeah, I can at least tell you that you've done a good job with that one. <laughs> yeah. And I believe that Lee also has her own separate identity as a teacher? Yeah, she was a teacher for a public school teacher, then private school, and then she went to work for the federal government and worked in, the, in uh, OSHA and developed a special training program in OSHA that she traveled all around the country doing. And again, it was because of her teaching skills that that worked so, so well. Uh, now she writes the weekly column for the local newspaper, and I just walked into somebody, ran into somebody a couple of days ago who said, oh, tell your wife, I just love her writing. It's just terrific. She doesn't know that, but tell her. And uh, so she gets a lot of a lot of satisfaction out of that, plus the fact she's involved in various community projects and activities, so she's busy. So the both of you really have had um, kind of a mutual love for community and education yeah. Oh, we, and we really have. Yeah, we really have, I, and I think that's the reason the marriage has worked well, is because we, we really are coming from the same place. The other reason it works well is because I grew up just a, about a 10-minute walk from her, and so there's, she's, she was rooted in that community in a way I was not, but nonetheless the same values and the same sense of history, et cetera, that we brought to our marriage from, from those years I think has been critical as well. I look at a lot of marriages today that fail, and that's because they don't have any real basic common roots together. One comes from California, one comes from Texas or whatever. They have no connections except the two of them. We've always had the support of Lee's family and my family, and it's been fantastic. So. You're a lucky man. Lucky man, yep. What are the teachings of the church that most resonate with you as not only um, a leader in the church, but also as a person? Well, I have a long history of being concerned about justice. And I think that's at the heart of Jesus' teachings, is justice for the poor, for the oppressed, for the rejected, always reaching out to them. So the, the stories that, that carry that message, I'm just thinking, for instance, of the, of the prodigal son. You know, he's, he's rejected by his brother, 
but he's welcomed home by his father. I think of the story of the Good Samaritan, where this person from outside comes in and cares for this person who's been rejected by the core in-group and brings hope and justice to that person's life. All those issues having to do with justice and and caring for those in need and, and bringing healing to the world. That's, that's what resonates with me and what drives me. If you would talk to anybody who can remember any of my sermons over the years, that's where I almost always come back to. I'm not talking about theology, I'm not talking about those kinds of things, but how do we engage the world and make it a better place for people? How do we help people experience the presence of God and the hope that comes through that sense of presence? And how do we give them an opportunity to lead just and, and good lives? So I've, I've been involved in that side of thing for a long time. That's what drives me. One of the words that is um, used a lot is the word love. And it's, of course, a beautiful idea. And it also is not always easy. Nope. Sure is it. Uh, well, in fact, that concept of tough love, which is a fairly recent uh, understanding of it, uh, I think is, is the way it is. Uh, to love... Uh, the outcast, the rejected, you know, it's really hard to do that. And I was just thinking, hearing the radio this morning, you know, we are concerned about the people who are suffering around the world, so many of us, and yet at the same time, we're spending enormous amount of money on weapons, etc., and very little on humanitarian care. Uh, you know, it, it's, we've, we've got something out of whack when we uh, go down that track, and I, I don't know how we straighten it out, but I, the tension is always there for me. How can we find a better way to express the gospel? How can we encourage people to move beyond the narrowness of their faith into the broader world where we engage people and bring people hope and life? In Booth Bay Harbor, I helped establish a, an organization called the Boupe Region Community Resources Group, uh, <clears throat> which really is helping all the churches and the schools, et cetera, in the community work together to help those who are poor, to help those who are abused, et cetera. And it's been a tremendous program. It just really is so, so helpful to so many people. But until you get organized and pull the community together, it doesn't really work. And so that's another dimension of what I've been involved in. So by continuing to be part of the chapel mm-hmm. every weekend in the summer and provide this sacred space for people on the side of the, uh, on the rocks by the ocean, do you think in some way you're advertising you're, you're drawing people towards this greater good that you're talking about? Some way for advertising? Well, just some way. Is it a way to promote the, oh. this sense that there's this smaller community that people yeah. go to church for, but if you are involved in this smaller community, that you're kind of you're bringing people towards a greater community as well? Yeah. Um, there is a way to promote that. Uh, but it's mostly one-on-one, I find. 
and uh, we're always encouraging people, hey, if you have some people who've never been here, bring them here. You know, if they don't continue to come, that's okay, but let's open it up for them to experience it. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on, partly because being a summer community, people have a little freedom that they don't have if they're in a year-round community where they have to live with everybody the whole year round. The summertime, you know, we're more relaxed and uh, more open, I think, in lots of ways. So uh, just reaching out and telling people to bring their friends and neighbors, and, and uh, I think that's best we can probably do. But the other thing, by, by showing forth what we preach about and talk about in action, that's the biggest way to draw people in from my point of view. We have something on the island called the Southport Island Association, which for years was for summer people only. And then a few years ago, somebody got the idea, this is crazy, there's all kinds of people on the island year-round who we ought to connect with. And so they've been working in that direction ever since. And because of that, they established two different funds to help needy people on the island. There are a lot of poor people on the island of Southport four children. And so this group that had been totally focused on its own little world has broadened itself and opened up a whole different dimension for the community. And uh, it's enhancing the life of the community. And that's partly due to people's religious backgrounds and sense of justice, but it's also, you know, just an awareness, I think, in, in the community that, hey, we've got a dimension here that we need to address. And they hadn't been just focused on themselves doesn't work. I've been speaking with Kit Sherrill, who previously served as the summer rector of the Chapel of All Saints by the Sea in Southport. I appreciate your coming in today. Thank you very much. It's been my privilege to do so. and It's always a privilege to be able to talk about that special little place by the ocean. So thank you very, very much. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Tickets for Maine Live are available now. Maine Live is a day of inspiring talks and stories of grit by the business and creative people shaping the future of our state. Join host Dr. Lisa Belisle and 14 mesmerizing speakers that will inspire conversation and connection. This fifth Maine Live is on Thursday, September 21st at USM's Hannaford Hall. Go to maineliveseptember2017.splashthat.com for more information and to purchase your tickets. It is my great pleasure to have with me today Al Moses, who is the caretaker of All Saints by the Sea, an Episcopal summer chapel in Southport. Al lives next door to the chapel in a home built by his great-grandfather more than a century ago. Thanks for coming in today. Uh, Glad to be here. So your family has been um, affiliated with All Saints by the Sea from the very beginning. And before. And before. When he built the cottage in 1870, he was an active minister in Gardner, Maine, and would come down to have picnics and bring some of his congregation down, and they would have... uh, They they didn't only reserve Sunday for services. They would have services whenever he said, we're going to have a service. And if it was sunny weather, they had the services under the oak trees in the field. If it was a rainy day, they came into the house that he built 
and had the services in the house. So they were having services there for a lot longer than the church existed. And the church itself was built in 1905 by the Gray family, which is, they were fishermen and boat builders that lived on the island. And uh, it was completed, I think, in 1905. And the church finally sanctioned it in uh, in 1907. So that was our official 100th anniversary was 2007. But it operated a little bit before then. And the family has been involved with it ever since. You know, I'm the fourth generation from that, that uh, and all of my predecessors and so on have uh, had things to do with All Saints. Where is your family originally from before Gardner? Well, my, that was my great-grandfather was from Gardner. My direct father and mother were both uh, Mount Vernon, Pleasantville, New York, raised uh, for a little oddity. I'm the youngest of three children of theirs, and I have the pleasure of being able to say that I was born rather high in this world. The hospital was at 12,500 feet in the Andes Mountains in Peru, so I had problems coming down to sea level, but once I got used to it, I kind of like it. Why were your parents in Peru? Oh, my dad was a mining geologist, and uh, he was with a copper company, and they were mining copper, which kept him busy during World War II. They needed copper for bullets more than they needed him, so he evaded World War II by that. And we came back to the U.S. in 1951. I thought on vacation, which we did every three years, and it turned out that we were moving to the U.S. permanently at that point, so I've been in the U.S. since 51. And all that time in Maine? No, no. Uh, when we first moved to the U.S., we moved to Arkansas because that was where the mining division of his company was headquartered. And in 1958, when Governor Faubus had a little problem with uh, integration, we coincidentally, the company moved us from Little Rock, Arkansas, to Richmond, Virginia, where the company headquarters were. So all of my friends that were still in Little Rock had to find schools somewhere else, and I went into a high school with 1,500 people in my class in the 10th grade. It was a little awkward. That's a huge class. Hmm. That was a period of time when there was only one white high school on one side of the river and one black high school on that same side, and then a reverse on the other side of the river. So it was pretty concentrated. It was for the whole city, basically. They now have four or five high schools on each side of the river to handle the people. But it was an interesting experience. Well, I would think so. If you're used to one way of doing things and mm. you're right in the middle of history changing, yep. how did that feel being a high school child? Uh, it was a good high school. It had a very good reputation, so it was uh, it was okay. But it Socially, it was a little tough because you're trying to break into a crowd with that many people. It was tough. But so when I went to college, I went to a college that had 800 total students. Made up for it. It seems a little more doable. When you knew everybody on campus after the first year, you know, it was pretty good. Where did you go to college? Monmouth, Illinois. Monmouth College, old Scotch Presbyterian school founded in 1850 or something like that. And it had an excellent uh, student 
to faculty. There was 13 students per faculty member, and it had the highest percentage of faculty with PhDs of any college or university in the country at the time. So it was, it was a good place. What did you study? Foreign languages and history. So how did you get from that focus of study to what you're doing today? Well, when I, I, after graduating from college, I got into the insurance industry, and I was in that for about 25-plus years. And then my dad was a widower at that time, and he, uh, as he got into his late 70s, early 80s, some health problems started coming up, and he was rather uh, blasé about taking care of himself. So I took early retirement in order to keep him going. So I got, got him from 79 to 85 before he passed away. And uh, then I, from that point, I moved permanently up to the main cottage, and uh, we sold his house down in Virginia. And I've been in Maine ever since. How long ago was that? Uh, 1995, give or take. So you've been living next to All Saints by the Sea for many years then? Yes, yes. 20, 20 plus, yeah. What does a caretaker do? Anything that somebody suggests they think needs to be done for the place, which sometimes is necessary, which sometimes you have to kind of glide over because it's really not necessary. But um, I replace the plumbing if it goes bad, new sink, new faucets, new toilet, uh, turn on the water. We have seasonal water up there, so I have to set it up and turn it on and off in the fall and drain the system. Any of the repairs, with the exception of roofing, uh, I will take on by myself. When I was chair of the committee years ago, I got some of the committee to work with me and we uh, tore out the old deck and front porch and redesigned it and redid it with that product called Trex, which is uh, maintenance-free, which was better than what we had, which was requiring a lot of maintenance. And that got me kind of started with doing a lot of things at the church. But it's because of its construction, it's a pretty easy place to take care of because it does not wear badly. It uh, withstands the weather all right, and we have no problems with uh, wood rot or anything like that. So during the normal summer, it's occasionally there's an electrical outlet that's gone bad or uh, uh, we need more paint on the floor, minimal stuff. Uh, but it's something that keeps me busy. And then my favorite time of year happens to be uh, Christmas Eve when we are not open, except for the fact that on Christmas Eve day, we worry about what the weather has done. And if it allows it, meaning can we clean out and shovel off all the snow and ice, we have a Christmas Eve service. And we've done that with uh, Kit Sherrill's leading us uh, for 14 years in a row now. And we have with not being able to announce until the day of the service that it's going to be there, we end up having, last year it was about 85 people at the service. So it's, it's a fun time. So you're able to, at the last minute, decide we're going to hold a service. We want to make it safe for the people to be able to walk in because we have one disadvantage. You can come to our church by water. You don't want to do that on December 24th. Or you can come by land. But we don't have adequate parking close to the church, so they have to park on the 
the main highway up on the island and then walk in. So we want to make sure that that whole walk is ice-free uh, and or sanded so that they won't slip and fall. And until we're sure that uh, they can come down safely, we don't say it's on. So it's a last-minute thing. It was your great-grandfather that was first involved with the church. It doesn't sound like there's been there have been any ministers since then in the family. Not on a permanent basis. In the summertime, uh, years ago, what they did was they had a visiting minister do the last service of June, and then we had a full-time for, for the month of July, full-time for the month of August, and then another visiting minister. We could usually find somebody locally that could do the first and the last. Uh, some years ago, we kind of stopped doing the full month period in order to get more variety in there, and we have now uh, visiting ministers that usually will come for about a two-week period. Sometimes they can only make it for one, but we schedule them for the entire summer, and uh, we get a little bit more variety that way. We have a lot of people that volunteer that say they want to do it, and then when it comes down to giving them a date of availability, they say, well, I can't do it then. So, But we've managed to get them every Sunday. In your family, were there ministers prior to your great-grandfather? No, and the only one since then was my sister who decided after she got out of college at Mount Holyoke that uh, she tried a few other jobs and at some point in time living in New Jersey got uh, Bishop Spong down there to sponsor her and she became a minister and is now retired and living down in Florida. So from what you understand, what was it that drew your great-grandfather to be a minister? That's a good question. Uh, probably, I think that in the 1850s and 60s, I don't think there were that many uh, careers that you could make that would involve going to college. And whether he studied religion at Bowdoin, I don't know. He came out of Bowdoin and uh, pretty quickly was vicar at uh, the Gardner Church. So I'm, I really don't know what motivated that. Uh, he was well-liked, I can tell, from some of the notes that we've seen, but don't know. And I never, of course, had the advantage of knowing him or any quick relatives of his, so I don't know. Why has your family taken such an interest in um, making sure that services are available in Southport? In honor of my great-grandfather, mostly. And proximity has something to do with it. When you're next door to the church, you want to make sure that it is uh, operating all right and not having any problems. And luckily, we're very successful. And it's, uh, there have been a lot of summer chapels in Maine that have been in existence for 100 or more years that had to quit because they just ran out of people to support it. And we have been very, very lucky in that we've had a, a good bunch of people that come to it, and we've got a good endowment and fairly good attendance. Like all churches, it's drifted a little bit in the last few years. Less young people coming to church. Uh, the church congregation's steadily getting older, but uh, it still manages to draw people, partially because of the location. It is a nice place. Are you aware of any other churches in Maine that one can get to by boat? I know of none other 
there I I think there is one more on the East Coast that might be in like North Carolina or something like that that you can come to by boat. And years ago, that was not an expense factor because there was a tour boat that left Booth Bay Harbor and went out to Squirrel Island, which is a mile and a half off of Booth Bay, off of Southport. And uh, it only cost, you know, like a dollar for an adult and 50 cents for kids to take that round tour ride. And they had no problem with taking people that wanted to go to church and coming over and dropping them off at our float. So it was not expensive. That now costs probably about maybe 10 or $12 minimum for an adult and $8 for a child. So taking a family to church can get expensive. So that's slowed down. People do bring their private boats in and we have anywhere from one or two to maybe a half a dozen that will tie up during the 10 o'clock service. Some of them are more industrious and will come to the 8 o'clock service by boat, but that's probably no more than one or two for an average. So how many people would you guess are coming for each service by boat? Um, in days of yore, it could have been as many as uh, 20 or 30. Uh, currently, on the pay-for boat, it's dropped down to probably no more than a half a dozen a season. And then on their own boats, uh, we have probably 20 or 30. Are these people that have been um, coming to services by boat for a long time? Some of them are. Uh, some of them, it's, they appear only maybe once a season, uh, maybe to show some friends the church, which, you know, if it's a nice sunny morning on Sunday, good reason for a boat ride and get a little bit of religion at the same time. You mentioned that the church has a good endowment, which has enabled um, the parish to continue on. Yes. Why the good fortune for this your church versus other churches? Southport as an island is blessed with the fact that there are a lot of people of above average means that some are there and a great many of them because we do a it's an Episcopal based service but we try and keep it ecumenical uh, so they will come to the church and go through communion rites and so on with the others uh, and some of them have been doing this for 50 or more years and it's just a habit Tell me about the special events that happen at the church, like baptisms and weddings and funerals. What types of stories can you share about those? We had one summer, again with the services at that time, were the last Sunday of June through the first Sunday of September, and we had 26 weddings during that time. And uh, we had people who were sometimes having to get out of the church quick to let the next group in on Saturday or Sunday afternoon. But we managed 26 weddings in one season. What uh, year was that? Oh, that that goes back probably about 15 years ago. Uh, it's gotten a little bit less uh, in the past few years. Our disadvantage is uh, parking problems, and some people have figured out nice ways to get around that, like they will charge uh, charter or hire a boat to bring over 30 or 40 guests on the boat. Uh, other people have used uh, large buses and brought them in by that method, but it's it takes a little bit of extra work for people, 
and uh, there's we have competition with a chapel out on Ocean Point that uh, kind of maybe interrupts us a little bit, but other than that, uh, it's probably more you got to like the location to put up with some of the downside, and some people are more forgiving about that. So what is it about the location that is special? It's a little church that during the services you can hear the waves slapping on the shore. You can hear all the birds out there doing things. I mean, we're at a high tide. We're 10 or 15 feet from the water. Um, We've got a bunch of natural woods around us that we try and keep natural. So it's a little spot that people just enjoy coming to and uh, meditating. In the wintertime, I'll even go over there sometimes in January with two feet of snow on the ground, and there's a trail of somebody, and they're sitting down on the front porch with blankets over them and a a thermos full of hot coffee. We have the advantage of one that not too many places on the east side have. You can see Monhegan Island from there if the weather is good. That's about 11 miles as the crow flies straight east of of us. And that, of course, draws a lot of people because Monhegan's kind of a mystical, magic place of its own right. So my understanding is that um, in the wintertime, the house that you live in is not entirely weatherized. (laughs) Understatement. Right. I keep the core of the living room uh, comfortable and thank God for electric blankets in the upstairs. But also, fortunately, heat rises. So my bedroom is usually on a 10 degree day outside. It's probably about 60 in my bedroom when I go up there. Uh, And my living room is oftentimes 80 degrees at the ceiling and 40 degrees at the floor. So. So why do that? Love it. You just like solitude. Just like the you like the solitude. No, it's it's nice. Uh, you know, it's therapeutic. Uh, you're not bothered very much with anybody passing by. There aren't that many boats out on traffic, and the only change that's now there and isn't a problem is my sister sold a piece of our land that was just due north of me, and so I've had to put up this past year with a house being built right next door which, of course, is not built in the style of my house. It's not a McMansion, but it's a full-blown winterized house that's gone up. So uh, a lot of noise and a lot of fun from that. But Hopefully it'll shift back now that the house is... Well, yeah. Yeah. Maybe they'll open their door in the winter. No, I kid about that. I wouldn't do that to them. <laughs> Well, I mean, maybe it's a way that you could go get warm. You know, no. I I have ways to do that. Um, and I'm supposed to be having a well drilled. I've got a surface dug well that my great-grandfather's group put in years ago that I used during the summertime. <clears throat> but uh, it's surface feed also, which means when it gets below 32, your lines freeze up. So that gets a little awkward. But gallon jugs work. So it sounds like it's not unlike the chapel, that it's a charming place that has some disadvantages you have to be willing to work with. There are times when it's uh, a little aggravating, 
but you know you can do it. You can make do. So that's not like living in the Arctic. You live on Pig Cove Road, which is very poetic. Why is it, it called Pig Cove Road? That is well, the actual person that said we would get Pig Cove as the name of our road, I don't know. I kind of, in the back of my mind, blame an older brother of mine, but I don't think he did it. I think it was the town that named it. Originally, Capitol Island, which is right off of Southport and connected by a little drawbridge, or not a, a bridge, was called Pig Island. And my great-grandfather and some of his people in Gardner would come down because this island was often used as a ferry stop, and they would come down and walk down to the south end of Capitol Island and have picnics. And at some point in time, my great-grandfather looked over, saw this piece of property on Southport, made the correct inquiries, and bought the piece of land that the house is on. Unknowing to anybody when he did that, my paternal grandfather had a farmhouse in the field that was right next to that. And <coughs> the it took my great-grandfather a few years to make the move to have the house built and so on. And then the other connection that happened there was his first wife died, and he ended up marrying the daughter of my paternal grandfather, which brought the two properties together when inheritances came in. And uh, so that was that connection. And That's an interesting coincidence that yeah. the two sides of the family came together before they even realized it because the land was next to each other. And the land may have been the reason for it, or the land was the reason for it. But anyway, back to your Pig Cove Road. Capitol Island was known as Pig Island, and there's a ledge behind it to the Booth Bay Harbor side that's called Pig Island Ledge. That doesn't really show up on a whole bunch of charts, but if you go back to the 1600s, there are some charts that have Pig Cove down to the north of us, and it slowly by name on charts as the 1700s came and the 1800s came, moved up. And by the 1800s, in the late 1800s, some people that were coming down from the capital area had seen the success that Squirrel Island had with making uh, one person bought Squirrel Island and then they made uh, house lots available to people for renewable 99-year leases. This group from the capital area saw Pig Island available and thought it was a good idea and we're not going to go around with this 99-year lease. They'll buy the property and they'll own the property. And they were from the capital area and wanting to call it something other than Pig Island, which may not have been attractive to buyers. They called it Capital Island. So you're talking the capital of Maine? Right, right in front of Southport. So oh. when you look oh, in from see. the church, you actually see the south end of Capital Island. And then the cove for name of Pig Island, Pig Cove, got into that area between Capitol Island and, and my house. On Google Maps, it's now moved back down to the north a little bit, but it's still basically that whole area. And I thought at one point was because it was porpoises were in there, and porpoises were maybe called pigs. I think that the pigs on the island was probably more likely. And 9-11 is the reason that the road got named, because at that point, if you had more than uh, one family living on the, on the same roadway, you had to have a street name for it, not just 
uh, house, uh, you know, a last name. And so that was when we got tagged with Pig Cove Road. And Capitol Island, these, these are people who came from the capital of Maine or the capital N- of the United the States? The ones that bought the, uh, bought the island and then sold it to people. And most of the people that bought it were probably Bostonians, uh, maybe some from New York, but I think most of Massachusetts, some from New Hampshire, that wanted a place on an island. On this. And this one has an advantage after they built the bridge to it that it was accessible by car, or it was also accessible by steamboat early on. Uh, that made it much more attractive that you could drive out to it as Southport when they finally were connected by bridge to the mainland. What have you noticed in the time that you've lived um, next to All Saints by the Sea? What changes have you seen? A little bit of gentrification to certain neighborhoods. Uh, You know, you get more and more people. The the area that I happen to live in is a little unique because for about eight or ten cottages due south of me, the families that own those cottages have all owned them for a hundred years or more and still do, but further on some of the cottages have uh, changed hands and have gotten a lawyer from Boston who buys a little cottage and doesn't like it so he has it rebuilt, doesn't like the lay of the land with woods all around it so he levels all the trees and plants grass. So you go through some changes like that where things get upgraded in one area but not everywhere and in our area most of the houses are still vintage I mean, we did have one built about 20 years ago uh, in that grouping, but that was on land that was owned by people that are still owners of houses in that area. Uh, And they tried to keep it a little bit more natural. But its temptation is to go in and, you know, rip out trees and plant grass and pave a parking lot. Well, I very much appreciate your coming in and talking with me today. Oh, my pleasure. Today. It's been a lot of fun. I've been speaking with Al Moses, who is the uh, caretaker with longtime family ties to All Saints by the Sea Church in Southport. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing there. Well, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 306, Summer Chapels. Our guests have included the Reverend Kit Sherrill and Al Moses. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Main Radio photos on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belayo. I hope that you have enjoyed our summer chapel show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.